Thanks for coming along tonight. At a busy time of the year as we as we get to Christmas and the New Year and Hanukkah and all that. So tonight we have our speaker, per courtesy of the Australian Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, AJAC, who brought our speaker here tonight. So Anna Boshevskaya, Anna Boshevskaya, um, who is a senior fellow at the Washington Washington Institute in Washington D.C. and the author of a recent book. Putin's war in Syria, but tonight she's talking with the Sydney Institute on the topic Russia and Ukraine implications for the Middle East. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to start uh, by highlighting three main points. Uh, the, around which I'm going to uh, focus my discussion. And I was asked to speak for about 30 minutes, but I especially look forward to your questions uh, where, so I can really uh, zoom, in, zoom in on the questions that are uh, of most interest to you. Uh, so the, the topic of our discussion today, of course, is impli implications of uh, the Ukraine war for the Middle East. But before I start talking about the Middle East, first and foremost, I'd like to highlight that uh, that the implications of this war are global. The war, this war is about more than simply Ukraine. This war is about uh, Russia, the Russian government's effort to change the global world order. My second point is that the war is far from over. And third, only a decisive victory on the battlefield, uh, that is a victory, uh, a Ukrainian victory that gives Russia a loss, that makes Russia lose, will ultimately bring the war to an end. Until Russia faces a defeat on the battlefield, this yeah. conflict will not be over. Yeah. So let me take each one of each one of these points and go, in, go into more into more detail. Uh, the reason, here's why it's so important to understand the global implications of this war. Of course, Vladimir Putin does not believe that Ukraine is a real country. Uh, the, the idea that, uh, that this idea is deeply entrenched, unfortunately, in the Russian ruling elites. Um, so, uh, so, this is, so in this sense, the war, of course, yes, the war is about Ukraine, but it is also about uh, a fundamentally different view of how international relations should be structured. So you see, from the end, with the end of the Cold War, when uh, liberalism had triumphed, communism had proven a failure, uh, the West had assumed that his history essentially has ended and Russia was going to transform into a liberal-style uh, Western democracy. But people like Vladimir Putin, and there were a number of them in, in Russian security services, instead held deep resentment that the United States made them lose, in, uh, made their country lose in what was the greatest geopolitical contest of the century. Uh, and, it's not so, and it's not so much that they wanted communism back, they simply resented that their country lost in, ge in a geopolitical battle. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and they vowed essentially that they will, tr that they will have another chance. So where, where, whereas we assumed that uh, geopolitics no longer mattered, for Russia's ruling elites, geopolitics remained eternal. Um, so you've, you must have heard over the years uh, Russia, uh, 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 laments from Russian officials about, uh, uh, about how the West imposes ideas of a, of a rules-based global order. 
What is behind this complaint is the idea that the, that the post-World War II system that the United States had led in creating ushered a fundamentally new era, an era where, where the rights of small nations mattered just as much as the rights of large nations, the idea that sovereignty mattered, whether a country was large or small, but also that there was a limit to what the government can do to its citizens. So what the Russian government is doing right now in Ukraine, but also globally, is pushing back against these fundamental ideas mm -hmm. of, 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 of a rules-based global order. This government wants to do whatever it wants to whoever it wants, be it internally or externally. It's the idea that there, in fact, Vladimir Putin has a, a, fair, a, a somewhat unnoticed comment. It's, it, he's quoted on a lot of things, but uh, but he has uh, he has one quote that many that, that not many um, have highlighted over the years, and that is that very few states have true sovereignty. In fact, when he listed countries that have true sovereignty, of course he included Russia and the United States, um, it included China and India, but it did not even include Europe, really European countries. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you when you look so, so th this quote really helps you understand the alternative worldview that the Russian government wants to impose. It, it's a fundamental resentment of the West, Western liberal values, and of course Australia uh, and other countries that are not geographically in the West are part of the liberal Western family. Uh, so this is what Putin is trying, uh, trying to change with his invasion of Ukraine. And for this reason, this, this war affects everybody. There are other reasons, of course, why it affects everybody as well. Uh, but but this is the but this is the chief one. This so this war again is about re, about an alternative world order. Uh, why is this so important? Because prior to American leadership in the post World War II system, the United the world has seen two catastrophic world wars, and it is American leadership that has ushered an unprecedented era of peace and prosperity. When you look at history in, in in, in, in the grand scheme, in, in, in sort of a thousands, a thousands year uh, uh, scope. Uh, and that is why his war is so dangerous. Mm. How does now, how does this, uh, what are specifically implications for the Middle East? Well, first and foremost, when analysts in the West had tended to look at Russia over the years, they tended to look at Russia and Europe, and, and that is absolutely important. But from the Russian government's perspective, if, historically, the Russian state uh, looked in, in multiple directions. It looked, of course, west, east, but also south. And when we say south geographically from the Russian government's view, it's, it's the broader Middle East, that it's the Middle East, but also the South Caucasus and Central Asia, the so-called, uh, quote-unquote, vulnerable soft underbelly. That, the Rus that, that is how the Russian government, in other words, perceived itself. And again, we tend to be uh, fairly rigid in our geographical divisions between Europe and the Middle East. But from the Russian government, there's, there's more connectivity than disconnect. Uh, and in fact, uh, when, uh, th there's a very good reason why prior to the invasion of Ukraine, you saw uh, Sergei Shoigu go to Syria and, uh, and, uh, and hold naval drills on the Eastern Mediterranean, because Russia's position in Syria bolsters its, its Russia's military position in Syria bolsters its position towards NATO towards Ukraine in, in particular towards all of southern Europe so again continuity that there's a connection between the Middle East theater and the European theater in the Russian state thinking um, when the war began when Putin's invasion of Ukraine began 
the West had, of course, unequivocally condemned the invasion, but when it comes to the Middle East, the picture was far more nuanced. Uh, by and large, with a degree of variation, of course, uh, American allies uh, wanted to be more circumspect, uh, if you will, on how they responded uh, to the war, and that had to do uh, for with a lot of reasons, which I can go into more details during Q and A. But it had to do with how they perceived Russia, uh, how they perceived the war. Um, in other words, when whereas liberal uh, states fundamentally saw the war uh, mainly as, as black and white, as a case of a clear aggressor attacking a smaller peaceful neighbor, um, uh, uh, the, the region had concern, the region simply did not see it in a little bit more gray terms. The region also simply did not understand the history between Russia and Ukraine, and the region also um, did not want to did not want to get involved in the bigger geopolitical contest between Russia and, uh, and the United States, and had concerns again what, what Russia could potentially do uh, to them if they went too far in supporting Ukraine. Um, there are other implications as well. Of course, there are military implications, and that has to do with the fact that Russia is has been to date the second largest arms supplier to the Middle East, uh, but perhaps the most important one, other than geopolitics, is economic. Uh, the Middle East it, it remains uh, heavily reliant on grains from Russia and Ukraine and also other key food items, um, f far, more, far more than Europe. And uh, uh, unlike, uh, uh, unlike Euro European countries, their governments have been less prepared to handle a food crisis. So what we saw happening from fairly early on uh, in the beginning of the war is Putin, weaponize, Putin weaponizing food in an effort to create uh, 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 a famine in the region so as to create a refugee crisis, a potential refugee crisis from North Africa, from, from Middle East, uh, to, in other words, to, cre to create a second uh, lever of pressure on Europe, P to put Europe in a position where Russia would face not only Ukrainian, have to host not only Ukrainian, so Europe would have to face not only Ukrainian refugees, but also Middle Eastern refugees. And this was an attempt fundamentally to break Western unity on Ukraine. Um, this food crisis is not over. Uh, we, uh, there, there are, uh, I'm sure this audience is aware of the Black Sea uh, grain deal, uh, but the fact of the matter is this grain deal comes up for renewal every 120 days, and Russia had undermined it in, uh, from the very beginning and will continue to undermine it. So in other words, it's a constant sort of almost Damocles sword, if you will, hanging over, 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 over supply of food to the Middle East. Yeah. But beyond food, really, uh, the, the, you're, seeing a, you're, you're seeing a fundamental global uh, recession. And of course, countries are affected differently, but, um, but this point highlights that it's, it, economic issues tend to snowball. So it's not just food, uh, it's not just uh, energy, and of course, energy is another key element. Um, it is inflation, it is uh, interest rates, it's, it's how all these, these uh, factors com uh, compound on each other and affect every country one way or the other. Uh, so, so, uh, so the, the, the implications for the Middle East are, are profound. Um, from a political standpoint, the war highlighted differences, uh, perhaps uh, far greater differences in terms of worldviews, perceptions uh, 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 between, uh, between the West and our allies in the Middle East. Um, so it highlighted difficulties in, in, uh, in, in our relationships, and that's going to continue to remain uh, an issue uh, in, in the months and years ahead. Of course, another key example of that is uh, the, the, the difficult the tensions between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Uh, so, um, 
so and and finally, uh, last but certainly not least, the the the, um, the war highlights that because Russia uh, retains connections to the so-called global south, you're seeing Russia aligning closer with the global south, and that of course in the Middle East is chiefly Iran. Now, uh, Russia has been uh, in in a deep partnership with Iran for many years. Uh, it did not spring about overnight, but we're now in a situation where we're seeing Iranian drones in the Ukrainian battlefield. And of course, that highlights again the global nature of the war, but it also highlights the fact that Russia is simply not isolated globally. We like to say in the West, we point to sanctions, we point to military equipment, all sorts of other assistance that we're providing to Ukraine. Uh, we talk about Russia being isolated, but, but it is not isolated globally. Uh, and, and, and the Middle East is playing an important part uh, in uh, ensuring that Russia is not isolated globally because the Russia-Iran partnership is especially important in Syria. It holds multiple implications um, simply by the virtue of the fact that Syria is, um, uh, Syria is, is, a, is a battleground for, uh, for uh, multiple major powers. Uh, it, it is really an, an epicenter of great power competition. Now, we talk about great power competition in the United States now as a matter of trajectory of our foreign policy. Well, Syria is a key is is a, is what is, is a key flashpoint of that. Uh, and of course, regionally, Russia's relationship with Iran will affect every country. It will help ensure that Russia still has cards to play. And of course, that brings me to my other uh, two points: that the war is not is far from over. Right? Uh, we've seen. Uh, We've seen very important victories uh, on the uh, on the battlefield in recent weeks, with Ukraine conducting a successful counteroffensive. But the war is not over, and in fact, we're watching uh, the Russian military gearing up towards potential more fighting in the spring. So, um, uh, so, uh, so to tie to my previous point, uh, if Russia really, if Russia were isolated globally, if if it, if it did not have partners like Iran. Uh, like China and, and other nefarious actors, it would be a lot easier to bring this conflict to an end in, in a way that defeats uh, the Russian government, but that, that we're simply not at that stage yet. And finally, my last point again, uh, uh, only a decisive victory uh, 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 for Ukraine, that is a defeat for Russia, would help bring this conflict to an end. Uh, this is important because we tend to look at uh, peace deals, potential peace deals, as an end in and of itself. But unless the Russian government, unless Russia at large faces an internal reckoning with itself uh, in terms of its imperial ambitions, in terms of how it behaved towards its neighbor, the idea, the, 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 the sort of basically a messianic mission that is driving Vladimir Putin uh, will not be eradicated. And if, uh, if, if Russia is not faced, does not face that defeat on the battlefield, uh, the, the, the danger is that even with a potential peace deal, it will only be a matter of time, perhaps five, seven to ten years, that, that the Russian government will attempt another incursion. And so uh, let me end on this note that we're in, we're in a very long-term game uh, of global geopolitics, where the Middle East plays a very important role. Thank you. So, uh, many thanks, and once again, thanks to the Israel and Jewish Affairs Council for making this speech possible. So, if you just come back here, we've got questions, and uh, I'll just lead off. Uh, now, you're a, just stand here and talk to the camera. You're a um, 
a Russian speaker, you read Russian, you understand Russia. Now, I'm not, not putting this as an argument to you, I'm putting this to get your response to it. The idea in some circles that Putin's messianic um, mission, as you described it, was motivated by the fact that the Western nations went too far to pushing NATO close to the Russian border. Now, as you know, Estonia is not a member of NATO, but Poland is. I think the Baltic states are. Uh, is there anything to that, or would this have happened at any rate? Would, would Putin have been motivated wherever NATO was, if Poland was in NATO or not? How do you read Putin on that? Yeah, this, this, this uh, of course, this point comes up time, uh, time and time again. The 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 uh, that uh, the argument goes: had not NATO enlarged after World War Two, uh, sorry, after, after the Cold War, uh, Putin would not have felt um, felt threatened. Uh, I I, um, I disagree with that view uh, because uh, for several reasons. Uh, first, because uh, you can find uh, very early videos of Vladimir Putin in perhaps the late 1999, early 2000s, saying that there's no way NATO could be a threat to Russia because Russia is a European country. Uh, second, uh, because every effort was made uh, to bring Russia into the process. There was a special Russia-NATO council created. Uh, and Russia was a member of it until 2014. It was expelled. Uh, after its uh, illegal annexation of Crimea. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, Russia was consulted every step of the way. And in fact, in those very early years, as naive as it might sound today, the idea was that eventually Russia could potentially join NATO. The idea was bringing Russia into this mm -hmm. uh, family of liberal nations. Uh, the only time uh, uh, NATO's Article 5 was ever used was not against Russia, but, it, but in, in Afghanistan after 9-11. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, look, it's, it, this, this, is, this issue is certainly worth a deeper conversation. If you look at uh, Gorbachev's memoirs, for example, which recently came out, uh, Gorbachev writes that in his, in his view, the, United, the, the West had violated the spirit of some of these uh, uh, post-Cold War discussions, but there was certainly never any promise for NATO not to enlarge. And the, really, the, the, the underlying issue here is that is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a divergent worldview. In other words, um, as complicated as this topic is, and I realize it's complicated and nuanced, there were countries that asked to join NATO. And, uh, and those countries had gone through a very rigorous process before, uh, to, to meet certain requirements for NATO membership before they were allowed to join. But look at, the, look at how this, 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 uh, this process was framed. Countries asked to join NATO. In other words, uh, but, but if you listen to the narrative from the Kremlin, it was NATO that, uh, that asked these countries, that, that brought these country in, countries in, but the process was the other way around. Mm -hmm. And again, the divergence in the worldview is that uh, in a democratic process, you cannot discount other voices. Uh, the Warsaw Pact was not a voluntary organization. Uh, uh, and I think it's, it's difficult for, uh, for Russia's ruling elites, like Vladimir Putin, to understand that it is not that, other it's not that NATO took other countries as members, it's that those countries asked to join NATO. Uh, 
and again, this goes to a divergent worldview between a rules-based global order and a, a one where there are great powers that matter more than small powers. Mm. We've got a question. Maybe then we got yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next, no, hang on, you're next. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, what impact, if any, do you think Russia's military action in Syria has had on its relationship with Israel? Uh, well, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's actually central. It, it, it's really central because um, once, Russia, uh, once Russia entered the Syrian military theater in 2015, it, became, uh, it, 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 entered, it came onto Israel's doorstep. And with, whether Israel liked it or not, it had to deal with Russia like, to the extent that it hadn't had to before. Um, the uh, Israeli officials will talk about a deconfliction mechanism that, that they had to establish. Uh, and from, the, from Israel's security perspective, their chief priority is being able to continue to target Iranian, um, Iranian proxies, proxies in, the, in, in Syria. Uh, what, Russia con took control of the Syrian skies and in theory has the potential to close that access to, to Israel. So, uh, so that put Israel in a, in a difficult situation, in, in, a, in a dependent situation vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Thank you very much. I've got very much the same question and that was in a way interesting to listen to you and I agree with your three key points when you started talking. But what was interesting that during your talk you didn't mention Israel, you didn't mention Egypt uh, when you were talking about Middle East. Could you say a few more words what's happening now, especially in Israel with Netanyahu government coming to power how it would look like, especially considering very significant uh, proportion of Israeli population which came from Russia, and also a few words about Egypt, which way it would go. Sure. Well, uh, I guess I'll start with Egypt. Israel, Egypt is uh, uh, perhaps uh, more than any other country in the Middle East is dependent on Russian and Ukrainian food, uh, food supplies. And although it has received uh, subsidies, it's, uh, at least in the short term, it's unclear how, how prepared the Egypt is to handle uh, a potential food crisis. And um, uh, so, so, so Egypt, perhaps more than any other country in the region, is, is, is most vulnerable uh, as a consequence of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, of course, there's still a deep military relationship between Russia, uh, between Russia and Egypt. Uh, Russia is also building Egypt's nuclear power plant. Uh, and um, uh, and so this the uh, and so Egypt's uh, dependence on, on Russia uh, mm. remains remains quite significant. Mm. So I've got a question on our Zoom, uh, which is this: uh, You're an American. Mm -hmm. What impact will the new Republican majority in the in the House of Representatives have on U.S. support for Ukraine and the trajectory of the war? Okay, uh, could I say a few words about Israel first? Or do you sure. want to yeah. um, so Israel uh, is, a, is in a very unique position compared to all other countries in the Middle East because Israel is, is, a, is a strong liberal democracy. Mm. And of course, uh, as you said, it, it's a country that uh, hosts, uh, that, that has, uh, uh, hosts anywhere between, depending on how you calculate the numbers, anywhere between, between 1 to 1.7 million. Uh, of, of refugees or descendants of refugees from uh, from Russia, Ukraine, and the former Soviet Union. Uh, so uh, Israel has uh, Israel has been in a, has been in a very difficult position uh, since this war began. Uh, it, it's a struggle between 
uh, trying to maintain uh, values and to remain committed to their security. Uh, and of course, Syria, again, going back to my earlier response about Syria, uh, Israel view, from Israel, from the Israeli perspective, Iran is their number one existential threat. And from the Israeli perspective, it was always better to have Russia in Syria than Iran. I would argue, and I have argued over the years, the situation is a little bit more complex because, again, Russia and Iran really come as one strategic set. There's no, uh, for years, uh, the Russians had promised that they would limit Iranian presence in Syria, and that simply has not happened. Um, uh, so, but uh, there, there's also a number of Jewish, Jew, there's, there's still a sizable Jewish population within Russia. And in theory, uh, the Israeli government is, is concerned that should Ukraine take, a, uh, should Israel take a, a more uh, um, decisive position uh, in favor of Ukraine, they would, the Russian government would turn off that tap of immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so to be sure, Isra Israeli concerns are legitimate. Their security concerns are legitimate. Uh, having said that, uh, my personal view as an analyst that um, uh, that because Israel was founded on certain values uh, and and because this war affects everybody, uh, it, it's it's about a lot more than simply Ukraine. Uh, it would uh, that Israel should should do more, and perhaps the United States can work closer with with Israel to help Israel do more. And certainly, uh, Israel has done a lot when it comes to humanitarian aid, um, but Israel uh, did not want to arm. Uh, Ukrainians again out of out of concerns of what Russia could could do to them. So it's it's a very difficult, it's a very complex issue, mm -hmm. uh, and I know and people fall on different sides of that debate. I'm American, of course, and so I, I'm coming at it as an American analyst. Um, and when it, and uh, we've seen this that the, basically since the war in Ukraine, first of all, the Israeli position has evolved based on different leadership that has changed. Uh, Israeli diplomats almost engaged in this sort of rhetorical ballet that they're certainly diplomatic sort of dance in terms of how they cast their position on Ukraine mm -hmm. uh, with uh, with uh, Lapid, for example, condemning the war, condemning the invasion more than his predecessor. Uh, Bibi, of course, is uh, has a history with Vladimir Putin and is less likely to help, uh, in my view, less likely to, to do more precisely because of that, his own particular worldview. Um, and, and so it, it's a very complex uh, situation. Uh, and again, I'm speaking as an American, uh, as an American, uh, uh, an Israeli official will tell you, of course, that 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 for their security, they simply cannot 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 do more. I'm sorry, I thought you'd finish before. So, about the United States uh, House of Representatives, will that affect support for Ukraine? Do you think? Uh, it's a very important question. I, 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 there is there's certainly a vocal minority uh, in the United States that is. Um, uh, that is pushing for for reducing support for Ukraine. By the way, it does not come only from the Republican side; it comes from the Democratic side as well. Mm. Uh, I I still think that because this is a minority view, it is unlikely to sway uh, American support uh, for for Ukraine. Having said that, uh, there is a danger that uh, that a small vocal minority can hold an out can wield out uh, out outsized influence. And that worries me also as, as an American. But I think at this stage, our commitment to Ukraine uh, remains pretty solid. Christian, yes, My question is about Putin. Just a personal comment from you. Will he survive? What's um, his power, his power structure and all that? You know, I just, it's, everyone's talking about him as some sort of a monster and, 
but he's obviously incredibly clever and um, and a survivor. So I just was curious about your personal comments about him. Thank you. My personal uh, comment on Vladimir Putin is that he he is likely to survive this war. Mm. I think there is virtually no chance of a popular uprising against him. Okay. Uh, I think that's wishful thinking. Uh, the Russian citizens who don't support the war are mostly leaving rather than going out into the streets. And of course, it is incredibly costly. Uh, it is dangerous to protest. So rather than so rather than pr protesting, people are simply leaving. Some, some analysts had brought up a possibility of a, an internal coup, and that, that's likely, but also I think there's a low chance. It's a very risky uh, operation to undertake, and historically, Russia simply has very little history of that. If you look at other countries, like Turkey, for example, uh, other countries are more prone to, to, to internal uh, coups, but, but not Russia. Uh, in my view, the more likely scenario is that Putin will come out of this war intact but significantly weakened and russia will come out significantly weakened mm. uh, and we're already seeing signs of that mm. um it, 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 we also i think my view is that we either tend to under under or overestimate putin he he's not he's not he's neither an idiot nor a genius he's so he he's been very he's he is uh, he has been very successful in navigating uh politics he has made an enormous miscalculation with 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 Ukraine, he expected Kiev to fall in two to three yeah. days, yeah. and uh, he certainly did not want a, this this type of war. If you look at all of his previous wars, they were they were limited, they were short because he knows that the Russian public does not want uh, full scale mobilization. In fact, that this is why he's delayed uh, uh, an announcement of mobilization to to this day. Um, so 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 that so that so that so that is that that is essentially my view that. He will come out uh, still in power, but significantly weakened. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Um, interested in the role of Turkey and the impact of the Kurdish population, both in Syria mm -hmm. uh, and right across that part of Europe. Yeah, Turkey, of course, is yeah. Turkey is another critical uh, country to discuss. It's a NATO ally. Uh, a, a very a difficult NATO ally, of course, uh, one with whom Putin had cultivated a, an important relationship. And prior to the war uh, in Ukraine, uh, Putin had gathered more, gal more leverage over Erdogan than the other way around. Mm -hmm. And Erdogan was too slow to wake up to that leverage that Putin has built. And it had to do on a couple of, a number of fronts. Um, it, Russia's bilateral trade with Turkey was balanced in uh, Russia's favor. Uh, Russia was started building Turkey's nuclear power plant. Uh, uh, Russia's economy, uh, sorry, Turkish economy, depended heavily on Russian tourists. It's a tap that Putin can turn on and off. Uh, Russia uh, and Russia has very deep, long-standing ties with the Kurds, uh, with Turkish Kurds, with Syrian Kurds, with the uh, Kurds of the Middle East at large. And and it's a, and you could see how Putin used that card. In fact, in the beginning of the uh, Russian invasion in Syria, if you remember, there was an episode where. Uh, where the Turkey accidentally shut down a Russian jet, it killed a Russian pilot. Uh, one of in, in, Russia enacted sanctions. Putin demanded that Erdogan apologize as Russian tourists stopped coming to Turkey, which it, it put an enormous toll on the Turkish economy. But also Kurdish uh, leaders uh, uh, came to Moscow 
and made anti-Erdogan speeches. And the PKK maintained, uh, maintained an office in Moscow, and so this was a clear signal to Erdogan. Uh, the, the war, uh, to some extent, has shifted this dynamic, for sure. You're now seeing Erdogan playing a, a much bigger role. You're seeing him acting as, a, as an intermediary, uh, along with the United Nations, uh, for example, in, in, or in uh, signing the, the Ukraine, uh, the, the Black Sea Grain deal. Uh, having said that, uh, w w the, the war had also exposed that the Turkish government uh, didn't do things because it was the right thing to do, but rather because it was also extracting concessions from the West. In other words, when you were looking at two new NATO members, Turkey wanted concessions in return for its agreement to, 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 to allow two new members in. And so, uh, so it, it's, it's, it's a changing situation where, where uh, on the one hand, uh, the, the power balance between Russia and Turkey perhaps is being equalized. Uh, but Turkey remains a problematic uh, uh, ally uh, to the West as well, and, and Turkey is playing both sides. Yeah. Just going back to what you discussed about the uh, grain exports, I wanted to go back to a point in history, or what might be considered history. In the 1980s, uh, the Soviet Union was the largest uh, export market for Australian uh, grain exports. And in that context, it just seemed particularly odd uh, that 30 to 40% of international grain trade is now coming out of two post-Soviet uh, countries. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was just wondering if you could speak to that. Given that there are, with so much time, I was wondering if I could ask another question. Well, let's do one okay, fine. Yeah, yeah well, I think your question highlights something important about Russia and Vladimir Putin. Uh, and that is that for years, Western analysts, Western officials tended to look at Putin as a mere opportunist, not a strategist. And I, I'm very uncomfortable with that dichotomy because, uh, first of all, usually nobody is one, one thing or another. Uh, and in my view, as an analyst, there was a strategy that Putin followed. It's just that it was not a strategy the way the West defines strategy. Uh, but when Western governments talked about Putin's Russia, when Western analysts talked about Putin, Putin's Russia, they highlighted that Russia has nothing to offer to the world other than energy. And that Russia, Russia's economy was the size of Italy. You, you, know, you could bring in all sorts of statistics that highlighted that Russia was, by, by all of these matrix of population, by GDP, was not a great power. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, Putin did not only focus on energy. And yes, of course, energy and arms sales retained uh, remained key priorities. But he also cultivated the grain trade, mm -hmm. and uh, the world ca was caught unprepared to deal with the food crisis. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've got another. Well, we'll go back to you. We've got a question on Zoom. Yes. So, so my next question is. What's the likelihood of the use of nuclear weapons, whether it be battlefield, tactical, or other sort, in this, in this conflict, particularly in the event of the war going even worse for Russia? And sure. I have another question. No, 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 no. I understand that will do for the time being, but if there's another chance, I'll take it. Sure. Uh, so, of course, when it comes to Russia, the, everyone's mind always goes towards the worst case scenario, and that is, of course, nuclear weapons. And it would be irresponsible not to. So, it, it's, it, 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 of course, we have to consider that possibility. Uh, I, I think the chance of that is is low. It is possible. Uh, it is, of course, possible. But the reason why I think it's low is because, from a Russian military doctrine perspective, the war in Ukraine is is a local war. If NATO were to become involved, if the war were to regionalize, uh, 
this would be a different story. Uh, but if you look at uh, what Putin has been doing in Ukraine, is he simply changed his rhetoric, and it's, it's, the rhetoric has been very dangerous. He's bl he's blackmailing the world. It's it's a direct, open, uh, unabashed blackmail, right? Uh, but but the steps that the Russian military is taking have to do more with again con uh, food supply, with controlling. Uh, in fact, the U Ukrainian farmers had to don bulletproof vests when they when they planted crops. It has to do with uh, uh, attacking the infrastructure, the energy grid, uh, making sure that Europe, all of Europe, now has a very cold winter. Uh, grain uh, in the Middle East; Th these are not nuclear nuclear options. So, in my view, I think look again, it would be irresponsible not to consider that possibility. Uh, but also, giving into blackmail carries its own repercussions as well, and it's Ukraine that remains the primary target of a potential uh, use of Russian nuclear weapons, and they certainly remain committed to fighting. I've got another Zoom question here, so you need to explain this. What role has the US's, United States withdrawing from the JCPOA played in strengthening Iran's alliance with Russia? So first off, for those of us who are not expert, JCPOA, and to what role is the US withdrawing from that under the Trump administration? strengthen Iran's alliance with Russia? Sure, the, the JCPOA refers to uh, a deal uh, or negotiated between Iran and so-called group of P5 plus one, and that includes, and that is the United States, uh, Germany, uh, Russia, uh, France, uh, uh, on uh, specifically on the Iran nuclear program. It, it, is, a it is a deal that has been uh, negotiated for years, signed uh, under the, uh, the, the, the Obama administration, which uh, which Trump has torn up, and the United States, the, the P5 plus one group, has re-entered these negotiations uh, when, when Biden ha has come into the office. Um, uh, Russia, of course, Russia played an important diplomatic role in this deal. When, when I say important, uh, there are different there are different some cast Russia's roles uh, Russia's role in different ways. In, in my view, uh, Russia used the process uh, first to position itself as an important interlocutor and second to, to dilute uh, earlier sanctions against Iran. Uh, in other words, uh, in other words, when um, when Western governments uh, in the previous years talked about the dangers of the Iranian nuclear program, uh, the Russian government would say, yes, we would prefer to have a non-nuclear Iran, but then they would turn around and defend Iran and say that the West exaggerates uh, concerns about the Iranian nuclear program, that it's ultimately peaceful and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And also the Russian government extracted concessions from the West in exchange for its very participation in the P5 plus one program, uh, P5 plus one negotiations. So uh, how does how does uh, American withdrawal from the JCPOA um, influence? Well, um, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, the, the fact that Russia, ha the Russian government has breaking, broken virtually all norms of international behavior by attacking Ukraine in the way that it did. Uh, but remained uh, a member, uh, a, a key member of uh, negotiations on the Iran nuclear deal, that an American interlocutor uh, in these discussions, uh, highlights that, again, Russia was simply not as isolated, was not isolated completely for mm -hmm. its invasion of Ukraine, that it remained important in another theater, and, and, and that involved Iran, the Middle East. Yeah, we're getting close to the end now. So, so what does the war tell us about the relationship between Russia and China, particularly in light of the fact of the so-called No Limits Partnership and that the war was effectively timed to the end of the Beijing Winter Olympics? Uh, 
Uh, well, first, the war again shows us that Russia remains, uh, Russia has a partner in China, exactly for the reason, uh, for the, you had mentioned exactly right, that the invasion was uh, timed to, to go to happen after the Winter Olympics. And you, you could see Putin's conversation with Xi Jinping, it was pretty much out uh, in the open. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, because of Russian military losses, and it, the Russian military was uh, exposed as less competent on the battlefield that some had assumed, uh, the, this cre creates a potential opening for China for years down the road, uh, perhaps less of, a, uh, less of a dependence on Russia when it comes to looking at Russia as a military sort of, um, uh, 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 as, a, as a more experienced military power. In other words, uh, in, prior to the war in Ukraine, China tended to look at uh, Russia as a more experienced player in the military realm because Russia had ex actual Russian military had uh, had direct experience in three conflicts in Georgia in 2008, in uh, Crimea in 2014, and in Syria. Whereas the Chinese military had yet to fight a real battle. Uh, but because we're now seeing poor Russian performance, I think this raises questions about th this creates potential opportunities for China. On the, from a big so in specifically in the Middle East, what has unfolded over the years is that um, there's been a division of labor, right? Where China focused, at least in the short term, more in the economic realm, Russia focused more in the military realm. But potentially down the road, there could be more opportunities for China in the military realm. More globally, uh, Russia has, uh, without admitting it, has a, a de facto accepted a junior position vis-a-vis -vis China because it is its resentment of the West is its overriding priority. However, Russia will never accept long-term being second to anyone, and that raises, again, long-term questions about where this relationship will be. Final question, just go back to the second question you got and relates to the book you've written on Putin's war in Syria. You've said you think the war will be a long time before it ends. So tell us how it ended in Syria. It essentially ended in Syria, didn't it? I'm not an expert, of course, with Russian planes bombing Syrian targets and uh, or, or civil war targets, and uh, using shelling and artillery to destroy the joint. Uh, I mean, that sort of worked in Syria, did it? And can that destroying the joint work in Ukraine? So, yes. Uh, the, I think it, it, it top points to know in the interest of saving time about the, Putin's war in Syria. Uh, when Putin went into Syria, uh, 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 President Obama, but also other Western leaders, had fundamentally misunderstood what the war was about. Uh, it was about chiefly, uh, chiefly it was about the uh, the American global or the, the U.S.-led global order, and it was about preventing the United States from toppling another dictator and it's establishing a strategic position on on the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, President Obama famously said that Russia would find itself in a quagmire in in Syria. That is, it would overreach. Um, much like the Soviet Union had found, had overreached in Afghanistan, uh, a, a situation that became a drain on resources and uh, arguably had contributed to, to, to the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the Syrian intervention was designed precisely to avoid an Afghanistan scenario. It was a limited, a limited low-cost incursion that relied on other actors and gave Russia a strategic position uh, that allowed it to project power into the Middle East and Europe and further down into Africa. Uh, last thing, uh, and, and uh, the other thing to know about the, the, the war in Ukraine is that because Putin got away with his intervention in Syria, 
because he saved uh, one of the worst dictatorships in the world from an imminent fall. Uh, the region saw that, the Middle East saw that, the world saw that, and whether they liked Russia or not, they understood that they had to deal with Russia going forward, and that the West was weak, because the West said Assad must go, but it did nothing to make that, that happen. Um, in, a, in a broader picture perspective, look, think about it, Georgia 2008, Crimea 2014, Syria 2015, Putin never paid a price for his, for his military interventions. The, uh, and uh, if you add to that the, the debacle of American withdrawal from Afghanistan and how the United States handled the withdrawal from Afghanistan, it contributed to uh, hubris to believe that he will get away with uh, invading the largest country in Europe and, having it, and making it over in three days, much like he did in 2015 in Syria, much like it happened in Crimea in 2014. So weakness uh, is a very poor deterrent. Many thanks. Uh, thanks, Anna Boshevskaya, for a very informative discussion tonight on a very complicated issue. We've ran through uh, Eastern Europe, uh, the Middle East, uh, the United States, and more besides, and in a way that we could all understand here, although we're not experts on the topic, which is exactly what we wanted. So we hope you'll come back again sometime, but for tonight, congratulations and good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you.